2016 was a rough year. So many talented and amazing people left us. But shortly after Christmas, the world was saddened with the passing of a remarkable figure that meant so much to so many of us, and certainly to the listeners of this podcast. Two days after suffering a heart attack during a flight, Carrie Fisher passed away on the 26th of December. She was 60 years old. The passing of this iconic actress, writer, producer, and activist who first achieved fame as our beloved Princess Leia left fans in complete shock and grief. Carrie's performance as Leia Organa brought a strength and a passion to a role that could easily have been much different for its time and set a timely and ultimately historic example of what a heroine should be. My own daughter, at the age of three, became infatuated with the strong character of Princess Leia, literally assuming the role, as only a toddler can, for several months, at times only responding to being called Princess Leia. As Star Wars fans, we don't need expansive explanation on what Carrie Fisher did and the lasting impact she continued to have on an entire generation of Star Wars fans. But Carrie's true impacts and strengths were felt long after Star Wars. As at one point, one of the most sought-after script doctors in Hollywood, she became an acclaimed novelist, a memoirist, and a playwright. An outspoken and passionate advocate for mental health, frequently speaking and writing about her own struggles with bipolar disorder and addiction, Carrie's no-nonsense and realistic attitude shined bright in a stark contrast to the uniform sheen and all-too-frequent denial of what is normal in America and in Hollywood. Her unmistakable voice and self-deprecating humor made her a hero to millions of people and an icon for the world. A woman who suffered, grew, fell, got up, fell again, kept getting up, and ultimately showed us all what it means to own life. Own it like it's yours. Inspire millions. Be an example. Be yourself, unabashedly and unafraid, giving the middle finger to anyone who looks down on you for it. Carrie Fisher is a hero to my daughter for changing the face of our culture through a film, but she is a hero to me for her intellect, her wit, her passion, and her uncompromising drive. In her memoir, Wishful Drinking, Carrie wrote of the humorous story of George Lucas explaining to her that she couldn't wear a bra under her white dress. As he explained, there's no underwear in space. And she writes, what happens is you go to space and you become weightless. So far, so good, right? But then your body expands, but your bra doesn't, so you get strangled by your own bra. Now, I think this would make for a fantastic obit. So I tell my younger friends that no matter how I go, I want it reported that I drowned in moonlight, strangled by my own bra. Rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. A woman who was an advocate, a talented writer, a maven of humor and soul. To me, you will always be royalty. And to everyone else, please know that Carrie drowned in moonlight, strangled by her own bra.
This episode of the Order 66 podcast brought to you by the generous donations of Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, B. Witzel, Andy Bethel, Darren Hampton, Trevor Hill, and William Sullivan, as well as lots of viewers and listeners like you. Broadcast live, you're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and Wayne Basta, author of the Aristia series of novels. What is up, Gamer Nation? Welcome to episode 91 of the Order 66 podcast. I am one of your hosts, GM Chris. And if you are tuning in for the very first time, welcome to the original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing. And I am uh, joined tonight by two of my uh, best friends and co-hosts, the amazing GM Dave and GM Phil. Boys, it's a new day and it's a new year, January 1st, 2017. How are y'all? Happy New Year, Chris. Happy New Year and blow me 2016. (laughs) Good to hear you, Dave. How are you? Good, sir. How are you? Happy to be out of that year and looking forward to a new one. Amen. Uh, So we had a really, really, really rough end to the 2016. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's, it's one of those things I'm, I am, it's the good with the bad, right? You know, I'm, I, I was still on my high from Rogue One when we got the news about Carrie Fisher and, uh, um, I have, uh, yeah, I just, (laughs) I got nothing. I got nothing, man. I got, I got, I got nothing. Um, just, yeah, we, we pretty much said it all at the top of the show guys, but um, it's sad times for a lot of us, but very hopeful for the new year and very hopeful also for a lot of things that are coming up in the new year. I, I can't wait for the uh, new year of the podcast. Do you realize, Dave, do you realize that in 14 days we will be celebrating our nine year anniversary of the Order CTS yes. podcast? Yes, I am aware. <laughs> Hot damn. We're going to have to do something special when it becomes 2018 and we go for 10 years. God, I, I don't even know. Yeah, it's that's that's wild and crazy. Um, so yeah, man, it's uh, it, it's flying by. But uh, I mean, we got we got you know the, the uh, I, we got we got a good year of podcast coming up. We got some of the best content that's ever been produced coming out on the blog right now. We have Gamer Nation Con about to go into its fourth year. Now, perhaps even more appropriately than ever, titled you know Gamer Nation Con for a New Hope. Right. Um. Yeah, man, I'm just hopeful. <laughs> Not much more can be said about that. Well, that's true. That's true. But um, 
we have a pretty good show for you guys. I'm kind of, I, I don't know, I'm really intrigued to talk about this topic. Um, so I, I, I kind yeah. yeah. I mean, Phil, you, you had been tracking this request for a while. Um, uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it got mentioned again on our forums a while ago, uh, about, well, yeah, while, last, this past week. Yeah, but, but it's been requested and, for about a year, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's one of those things like, oh yeah, cool, right, yeah, we can put that on the docket. And then it's always getting bumped by other requests that get a lot more, well, I don't want to say a lot more, but the other requests that get more traffic and wanting to keep consistent with the, uh, uh, well, isn't that specials and books that are coming out and, I'm really glad this topic came up again because it is a worthy and worthwhile discussion. Yeah, I'm. I can't wait to get into it. Um, yeah. So let's do so. But first, we have to get to. I do believe uh, some announcements. Mm. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Announcements. Announcements. Woo-hoo. All right. There. What do we got, Dave? Well, fellas, the Grim Dark Podcast God, is. Yeah, we haven't talked about them in a while, I don't think, but the Warhammer 40K. Let us return to the realm for their <coughs> final episode of 2016, excuse me. They're talking Death Watch, specifically their own newly created narrative. So James and the crew also review Space Hulk, Deathwing, discuss the Black Templars, and talk about ways to use Space Hulks in your Death Watch game. So <laughs> check it out, and you can find this and many more podcasts at d20radio.com. And I'll apologize in advance, <coughs> because I'm still getting over this tonsil surgery. Yeah. So if I'm coughing and hacking, that's, that's what's going on. I'm amazed. You're, how many weeks are you out from your tonsil surgery? It was the day after our It'll last show, wasn't two it? Weeks, yeah. Two weeks tomorrow, yeah. Two weeks tomorrow. So, yeah, I'm pretty impressed with you. Um, just saying, did you get to eat a lot of ice cream? A lot of ice cream. I hated the ice cream. Just It became overwhelming. <laughs> Grown man hating ice cream. It's just it's staggering. It's staggering. Are you well? What? Are you well? <laughs> I am um, sort of well. Because yeah. I'm just saying, you know. Oh. Ice cream. <laughs> see, see, like, you know, brutal tonsil surgery and grown men hating ice cream. Is there anything more Warhammer 40K than that? I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> oh. Well, listen, you guys could find that podcast and many more great ones over at www.d20radio.com. Um, additional juicy bits of web goodness. Phil, we got some FFG news, man. We did, we did. Uh, the latest Age of Rebellion adventure, Friends Like These, has been released and is starting to appear in stores now. Uh, go get it. It was a lot of fun to play through. And uh, also, if you're looking for stuff on Mandalorians, that's the book you want to get it from, folks. I'm just saying. Yup. Uh, but, uh, no, dis- no dis- speaking of bounty hunters, no disintegrations is showing as on the boat since November 30th. With a typical six-week turn time, we should see that book mid to late January. But FFG has not left us hanging. They released a new preview article titled The Contracts Thing on December 30th, detailing the new specializations to be found for bounty hunters in no disintegrations. We are getting the martial artist, which is about damn time. Word. 
the master of unarmed combat gets some tried and true and all new talents like parry and unarmed parry, as well as precision strike and a new improved and supreme version. Uh, makes them critical strike masters. Perfect way to balance out their low damage, in my opinion. They will also apparently have several talents, both offensive and defensive, that make use of high ranks in coordination, which is very apropos. Yeah. Dude. Uh, As we sort of heard about before, we've got the operator, who is a powerful team pilot or gunner who focuses on being a bounty hunting wheelman, which brings starships and speeders to bear on their targets. A master of pursuit with shortcut and new improved shortcut talents as well as a series of talents that make them deadly gunners who can disable or cripple their quarry ships without having to resort to ion blasters. Uh, And finally, we get the Skip Tracer, the most basic tenant of the bounty hunter, tracking down targets who fled their bail bond or disappeared completely after a crime. A highly narrative spec that lets them track, investigate, and reconstruct scenes, and basically be the Sherlock Holmes in Mando armor for the party. Uh, this article is available right now with talent previews and great book art at www.fantasyflightgames.com. Word. And while you guys are astrogating the web, be sure to plot your course over to d20radio.com, where uh, it's just, of uh. course, the best... Ga- yeah, you see, what, you see what I did there? Huh? I see what you did you there. See what I did there? <laughs> um, because it is the best gaming blog out there that has been free of hyperspace mishaps for over 11 days. That's a record. I'm very proud of it. Um, not only a great place to find all the great D20 radio podcasts, but the most inspired fan-generated articles and content on the Holonet. Um, a couple highlights from this past week. Uh, Chris Hunt and Wayne Basta both continue to get their Rogue One groove on, uh, with separate articles in their ongoing Holonet Uplink and Rogue Squadron series, respectively. Um, Chris gave us full stats and background for Shore Troopers, which are those, uh, is the official name for the beach troopers we see in, uh, briefly in Rogue One. And which has been added to my list of costumes I absolutely must do at some point. It looks so cool. <laughs> God, those guys look badass. Um, and Wayne gives us X-Wing miniature squadron stats now that we have it from Rogue One and know that these things happened together over Scarif uh, for a squadron made up of the Ghost, also with red and gold leaders. Um, yeah, it's a pretty hip article. Dude, I, yeah, I don't want to play that squadron so bad. <laughs> Um, so great stuff, boys. Absolutely fantastic. And you guys can find all of this right now and tons more excellent content daily over at www.d20radio.com. And uh, also there on the right-hand side of the page, you'll find a couple buttons. One will take you to our forums where you can join our forum community and post your mind. Another will take you to our Patreon. Uh, you can click on that or just go to patreon.com slash d20radio. If you guys are a fan of the podcast and the content we produce, you're a fan of the network, and you want to help us just with a couple dollars a month, keep the servers humming, uh, keep power flowing where it needs to go, and as we say, most importantly, continue to keep our authors paid for the work they contribute to our site. Uh, show us your support. A couple dollars a month. That's all we ask. Um, what? Social media plug, Dave? Uh, yeah, dude. So, like, um, you know, head on over to all of our social media outlets. And that would be Facebook, D20 Radio Group, of course. Order 66 has a podcast page there. We have news about the podcast and the network in general every day. And you can ask questions and all kinds of good stuff up there. You can also follow us on GM Dave, GM Phil. Are you Darth GM on Twitter? I forget. And at D20 Radio. Yeah, I am Darth GM. 
Darth GM, yeah, and uh, GM Chris, of course. We will treat, tweet, treat, treat. We will tweet and post show info and announcements regularly right there. And coming Every- soon to a theater near you, Tumblr. <laughs> oh, I'll let you manage that. Um, <laughs> but Dave, I think every tweet is a treat, Dave. Every tweet is a treat, <laughs> and I would right swipe for you, gentlemen. Oh, oh. yes. <laughs> okay, twenty radio on Tinder. Okay, I was telling um, uh, I was telling Phil before the show uh, over last night over New Year's Eve. One of the games we played was a clone of Cards Against Humanity, uh, called Kinder Perfect. So it's literally cards against humanity, but they're just, and it's just as filthy, but it's questions and, and answers that are specifically related to parents, right? Um, and one of the questions was, I lied to my child about blank. Um, and the winning card was daddy's grinder account. <laughs> wow. Oh, love it. Love it. Um, absolutely love it. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right, guys, I think it's time to uh, take a quick break and check in with SWRPG Adventures and the most informative 140 characters or less on the internets with SWRPG's Adventure of the Week. And we will see you on the other side in about one minute. <laughs> Welcome to Star Wars Adventures of the Week, brought to you by SWRPG Adventures on Twitter this week. While Darth Vader scours the galaxy for Luke, the PCs infiltrate his castle on Mustafar, sent by Obi-Wan's ghost to recover his old lightsaber. This has been Star Wars Adventures of the Week, brought to you by SWRPG Adventures. For more adventure ideas in 140 characters or less, be sure to follow SWRPG Adventures on Twitter. And remember, keep adventuring! As we prepare ourselves for the journeys of a new year, I, I think it's somewhat fitting uh, that we take some time to talk about journeys in our games, specifically the interstellar journeys and navigations in hyperspace, um, especially with the recent release of two new Star Wars films in the past 12 months, uh, The Force Awakens and Rogue One. Uh, several listeners have contacted the show about uh, seeming inconsistencies in these films and what we know from Star Wars canon and Legends material about hyperspace travel, especially travel times, and of course, the wackiness of Starkiller Base. (laughs) What does all this mean? What is canon for hyperspace? And more importantly, how does this mesh or alter already produced astrogation and hyperspace travel rules in our games? We're going to talk about it all, so punch up those Navicomputers, Gamer Nation. And give a strongly worded whistle to your astromech as we make the jump to light speed tonight on your Order 66 podcast. So, do we even have a tentative title for this meet tonight? 
Road trip! <laughs> Road trip! <laughs> um, do we have Star Wars Vacation on the list? We should. <laughs> Well, we do now. We do now. Um, okay, so we we have a, a fair bit to talk about tonight, but I think, I mean, do we want to start off with maybe a little bit of a basic canon education here? Sure, considering we're talking about probably three decades worth of stuff that got thrown out the window recently. Yeah, I mean, give me, give me, give me a hyperspace one hundred and one here, Phil. I mean, you're you're our resident canon junk. Cool, cool. So before we start talking about rules and such, let's, as Chris says, have give, give you guys a primer about the concept of hyperspace in Star Wars. Uh, we're going to keep this discussion canon as best we can. The reset of canon versus Legends material prior to Episode 7 by the Lucasfilm Story Group changed a fair bit and put some of the more odd facets of hyperspace, like the Sharon species or hyper-rapture, Firmly in the realm of non-canon. I'm happy Hyper Rapture's in non-canon. That's stupid-ass stuff right there, I'm just saying. I'm just... <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so, first off, let's review the concept of hyperspace. That being hyperspace as an alternate dimension. Right. It's actually an alternate dimension that sits beneath the visible and tactile universe that we live in, sometimes called real space. All large gravity objects exist in both dimensions, projecting their gravity as a mass shadow into hyperspace. This means that stars and planets have quite real and dangerous shadows of themselves in the hyperspace. But the physics of hyperspace mean that travel in that dimension is radically faster than in real space, allowing a ship to move at orders of magnitude faster than the speed of light in hyperspace. The upshot of it is that a ship can punch into hyperspace, travel ridiculously fast, then fall back into real space, traveling hundreds of thousands of light years in a matter of days or weeks instead of centuries. Now, there are some canon species, like the Pergil, sort of like space whales covered in the Rebels cartoon, and they can naturally travel through hyperspace, and is theorized in Star Wars lore that the Pergil were the inspiration that led ancient peoples to first discover hyperspace. So that's just your basic hyperspace. Now, there's apparently also something called sub-hyperspace, and it relates to Starkiller Base from Episode 7. Okay, this is blatant BS story group rewriting, but it is canon now, so we have to go with it. Pretty much. <laughs> so, sub-hyperspace is a sub-dimension, which the First Order called sub-hyperspace. Structured even differently, it moves through the galaxy instead of across it like hyperspace does. While manner, sorry, while matter cannot, currently in canon, while matter cannot travel through sub-hyperspace, only phantom energy, a transformed version of dark energy, the First Order was able to utilize sub-hyperspace to create their terrifying weapon, Starkiller Base. Sub-hyperspace's unique properties allow energy movement at near-instantaneous speeds across the entire galaxy. Starkiller Base, unlike the Death Stars, which flew through hyperspace, then destroyed a planet via a real space weapon, actually generates an intense beam of dark energy and shot it through hyperspace to be able to instantly destroy a planet without having to actually travel anywhere itself. Now, there are some great campaign ideas here from this. Dude, yeah. This now-canon factoid opens up tons of potential campaign plot opportunities. It is implied that sub-hyperspace usage may be how the holonet or other instantaneous communication occurs. 
What about a mad scientist who is convinced that he can send matter through sub-hyperspace? Sub Maybe he needs test pilots, willing or otherwise. I like otherwise. <laughs> otherwise. Otherwise is always fun, and always good for at least a session. Maybe pre-episode 7 shenanigans by our PC party help lead to the discovery of sub-hyperspace weaponry, which will later be used by the First Order. See, the thing about The Force Awakens is it opened up so many things about, like, that we don't know yet about the creation of the First Order and sub-hyperspace and things like that. And these are all just, these are all just short-term campaign opportunities. All of them. I mean, your right. PCs can inadvertently do something that you can then reveal seven sessions in. It has, they've discovered something or have found something that it's gonna, like, create the First Order or give them access to the technology of Starkiller Base or whatever, right? Um, we made the first order. Crap. 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 It's like, <laughs> it's like, we, wow, we, we got all these beautiful people together from this colony. They're so amazing. They're force users and, um, they have like their own little force tradition. They call themselves the Knights of Ren. I mean, yeah, it, <laughs> you, <laughs> you will be able to hear the needle skip in your PC's brains when that happens. It's like, you guys saved them. You're so amazing. Oh, credits PCs for everyone. <laughs> Players are crying. What have I done? What have I done? I killed Han Solo. <laughs> so, okay, when it so this is hyperspace, just basic yeah. the, the physics concept of hyperspace. Now, when it comes to navigating said hyperspace, um, the canon history of Star Wars tells us that early hyperspace travelers they had a harder time of it than modern denizens of the galaxy do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems. Um, so entering hyperspace is possible through the miraculous technology of the hyperdrive, which is a specialized engine uh, that briefly accelerates a ship to light speed, which basically punches them into hyperspace and then maintains their speed, allowing them to move about inside the hyperspace dimension. Um, this is why spacers often say, we need to make the jump to light speed. Uh, to talk about entering hyperspace, even though hyperspace travel itself is thousands of times faster than the speed of light. Um, and that's been even old canon, pre, pre-reorg, that was, <laughs> that is canon. Um, the problem with this type of hyperspace navigation, though, is that the goo-gooplex of stars and planets with enough gravity to project a, a mass shadow into hyperspace is constantly in motion relative to each other. This means that intense navigation calculations are needed before you make a hyperspace jump to ensure that you don't impact one of these mass shadows on your trip through hyperspace. Um, now, Phil, most modern hyperdrives have dozens of fail-safes and safeguards that will drop a ship back to real space when coming within close proximity of a mass shadow. Mm -hmm. um, now, despite that, accidents still happen and hyperspace mishaps are... are Fairly common, I mean, considering how many people are in the galaxy in Star Wars, I mean, they're extremely dangerous. And this, this fact of fail-safes on the hyperdrives, and I do believe interdictor cruisers, those are still canon, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, they are now, yeah. Rebels reintroduced them. Yeah, Rebels reintroduced them. So this is another huge thing where, you know, that, that, that type of, of huge artificial gravity pulse created can create an artificial mass shadow that will drop you out of hyperspace. Exactly. Um, um, so this is another great plot point. Um, it's simply the fact that interdictor cruisers are still legit if you're playing a pure 
um, canon storyline. Yeah. Uh, big props to Dave Filoni and Rebels for giving us that that bad boy back. Yeah, I, I was I was very pleased. Mm. Um, now all this intense calculation to ensure you don't explode yourself and your ship Ooh. in <laughs> in hyperspace, um, it requires a very powerful computer. Uh, or a specialized droid, so a Nava computer or an astromech droid, is is required for the most part to make these complex calculations before a jump. You can do it without one, but it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically math genius level computations. Um, and furthermore, these calculations require navigation charts and maps that are recently updated with all this galactic movement. Um, in the distant past of Star Wars, uh, a series of buoys called hyperwave beacons, uh, per the canon work of the old, uh, in the Old Republic, uh, game, uh, provide <laughs> guidance and navigational reference points. Um, and earlier travelers, uh, had to make manual calculations, uh, using interesting tools like hyperspace sextants. Um, if you actually dig into the Force Awakens visual dictionary, Maz Kanata has one in her curio box. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. Uh, but modern galactic travelers with access to updated charts and, and data simply need a Nava computer um, or astromech to make all the core calculations. But it's not entirely automated. A living, sentient pilot or astrogator um, or droid, uh, if it's, you know, if it's a character, um, is still required to program the coordinates, assist in calculation, and spot check the work. Um this is also why there's hyperspace routes in the galaxy. I mean, these are like highways of hyperspace travel. Um, that they are what they are and they're so well traveled because there are millions of navigators and surveyors and government organizations that are continually updating these routes data to make travel on them the safest and the most precise. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, most spacers usually widely stick to established and very well maintained hyperspace routes and only the crazy or freakishly adventurous travel unmapped routes um which guys leads us to another great set of campaign ideas <laughs> um it does doesn't it yeah there is huge 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 potential uh for a pc party to serve as wayfinders i mean mapping and discovering hyperspace routes for areas of the new areas of the outer rim um, or even this is even more intriguing because of some of the things that can come off of it finding faster routes to existing locales. Um, because, you know, I think of storylines like maybe you've got a young up and coming navigation company, right? And they're, they're idealistic and they're, they're good at heart and they've been working hard and wayfinding and they're, uh, have found a faster route somewhere. You know, it's like, okay, everyone, everyone takes this route. And if you take this route, it'll take two weeks, but we found a route that'll get you there in half the time. Um, maybe they're beset by corporate espionage. Um, by, you know, competitors who want to you know, steal or discredit this new route they've mapped. Um, maybe an engineered hyperspace mishap or accident is threatening this young company uh, and the validity of this new route they've discovered, and the party has to unravel the mystery of who's setting it up. Or maybe the party is hired to cause such a mishap. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. To, to discredit the validity of this new hyperspace route. Um... There's there's a lot of I don't know there's a lot of potential there. So um Okay, so this is this is hyperspace travel. This is hyperspace navigation from a canon perspective, yeah? Right. Huh? We 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 all on the same page. Sure. Okay. Dave, talk to me about understanding 
let's flip our page and, and talk to me about understanding the astrogation hyperspace rules in game terms. Ah, uh, well, all right. So yeah, now now is the part of the show where we're gonna talk about what this means in game terms. And interestingly, this is one aspect of the rule system that many players simply know very little about, and they often just rely on their GM to simply tell them what's going on. So, we're going to take a little bit of time for all our listeners to ensure they understand the astrogation skill, hyperspace travel rules, as written. So, for your information, we're going to reference two primary sections available in each core rulebook. This is the astrogation skill and the general skill section, which is page 104 on your Edge of the Empire core rulebook, and page 116 of the Age of Rebellion core rulebook, and of course, not to be outdone, page 114 of the Force and Destiny core rulebook. So that's where you're going to get it in your core rules rulebooks. And secondly, the hyperspace travel subsection of the interstellar travel section, which is page 246, age, uh, edge, of Re edge of the Empire, blah, blah, blah. 260 Age of Rebellion, and 252 Force and Destiny. So those are the two places in your core rulebooks that we're going to be calling out. Okay. Um, so why don't we just let's get into astrogation checks. Yeah, I mean, talk to me about the astrogation skill, man, yeah. <clears throat> so this is, I would say, you know, and somebody in chat even said, you know, hey, you're traveling at the speed of plot. Well, I mean, that's sadly what it's become, <laughs> right? So, I mean, this is one of the most dump skills in the game is astrogation and yeah. you know it's an intellect based skill that's actually far more versatile than many players would think and yes it's on face use is to do exactly what you'd expect program and have a computer for a hyperspace jump okay great success is needed to make a jump but extra successes let you get more accurate with your destination such as arriving in orbit of your target planet instead of just in the system arriving at treetop level so that you can get through the fractional rate of the shield. That would hey. be triumph territory, I think, but we'll get to that. Hey, 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 maybe you never know. It happened. <laughs> Han Solo's just that good. Maybe you don't know. It. Yeah, exactly, right? Anyway, you saved that hours of, of, of travel time. Maybe extra successes can also be spent to reduce the time you need to accurately plot a jump, which is handy, especially when you're being shot at. Mm. Yeah. Uh, things really get interesting with advantage and threat, allowing you to decrease or GM to increase your overall travel time and triumphs. Of course, like Chris just said, let you do crazy things like you get a jump calculation immediately and plot a course that gets there ridiculously fast. Discover a new, faster, and a wholly new route. So, route. Did I say route? What the hell? Root. Your tonsils are teaching you how to talk. Something, again. man. I'm something. I'm just a man. Yeah. 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 Brain. Dysfunctional. So what about despairs? Yeah, what about oh, despairs. I think you could spend that to horrifically increase your travel time, cause a nasty little mishap, maybe inadvertently jumping out of hyperspace into the path of an asteroid or a comet. Or oh. uh, crashing onto a planet. Just, just saying. Just, just, There's, just, yeah. There's a lot of things that can happen. Very some some of them very very bad. But uh, okay, but that's beyond the, that. That's I'm sorry. The, yeah, that's the basic use of astrogation, right? I mean, just plotting the hyperspace jump. But you said it's this versatile skill. What else can you do with it? Oh, oh well. Okay, I'm glad you asked that. So 
it it's really I mean it's funny it's the default skill for galactic geography so if you need to uh, have a character know what systems are nearby and know where you are you know I mean you don't just automatically get born with a sense of direction especially as big as the galaxy is and this is an important point. I want to stress this because I have players that have gotten frustrated because it's like, well, what systems are nearby? We're in the core, so I'll use knowledge core worlds. And I'm like, yeah, okay, your difficulty is going to be four purple. Four purple? That's insane! I'm like, yeah, knowledge core world is about knowing what the culture of Alderaan is mm-hmm. or or understanding the the relationship between uh, the Corellian system peoples, all right? Like, you know, but, but, you know, understanding, you know, like roadmap style stuff, that's astrogation. And I'll let you make it with Core Worlds, but it's going to be harder. Or you can make an astrogation check at one purple die. (laughs) And then I get the blank stare. (laughs) The blank stare. You want a what? Yeah, you want a what? I didn't put any ranks Uh in that. Hey, but you know what? Also, if you're trading, if if you're talking about trading in commerce, this can be used for uh, to get a character's familiarity with the varied hyperspace routes and commercial routes that are most commonly used in those areas. This is true. Where do I sell this cargo? <laughs> I know yep. where. Um, hey, no. Very interesting. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so that's the that's the astrogation skill itself. Um. Okay. So Phil. Talk to me about hyperspace travel in the rules, because, uh, you know, that first section Dave mentioned is about the astrogation skill. How does that skill translate into actual travel times in the game and the results of those successful or non-successful checks? Sure. So this goes back to the results of your astrogation check combined with many other factors to determine how quickly you're going to get somewhere. But really, it goes back to the question of what are these factors and how do they work together? At its basic level, assuming several things that are equal, you've got up-to-date navigational charts, class 1 hyperdrive, and plenty of stress-free time to calculate, then you're actually looking at a pretty easy check, one purple difficulty die, to go from one place in the galaxy to the other. Your travel time is noted on table 714 in each of the core rule books and can be as fast as, as less than a day for travel within a sector to multiple weeks when traversing the entire galaxy. Which sort of brings us back to hyperdrive classes, because almost never will a starting PC group have times one hyperdrive. <laughs> exactly. Travel times noted on 714, table 714 assume that class one hyperdrive, and which is the fastest, most expensive hyperdrive commercially available. Most ships have a slower hyperdrive, so you've got to see what class of hyperdrive your ship has. You simply take the GM-dictated travel time, refer, referenced in table 714, and multiply that by the class of your ship's hyperdrive. So a class 3 hyperdrive will take three times as long to get from place to place than a class 1, and so on. Okay, okay. Astrogation modifiers are where things get a bit more complex. Varied situational modifiers covered on table 713 will impact the difficulty of your astrogation check, and they're all cumulative. This means your check difficulty will increase for things like a damaged ship or an outdated navigation chart, and radically increase for things like heavily damaged ships or a missing astromech or nav computer. So, when you make the roll, inevitably, you're going to generate advantage or threat. Maybe not every time, but 
It's going to happen. And this is where the fun of it comes into play. The difficulty is going to seriously impact your generated advantage or threat, assuming you're even successful. And as we've said, these things can further speed up or slow down your travel times. Mm, okay. So really, when you talk, and, and we'll get to this as well, but when you see somebody traveling even faster than those tables and they don't have a class one hyperdrive, it's entirely probable that they rolled a boatload of advantage or maybe some triumph. Right. Okay. Now, this brings us to really the last major section of our talk here, which is running a game with astrogation and hyperspace travel. We've reviewed the canon of hyperspace and astrogation. We've reviewed the mechanics as they sit in the core rulebook. But there's a lot of things that are left unsaid as far as how to put these pieces together in a game and, and really what to do. Uh, representing these rules in a very meaningful fashion is really what counts. Um, and at the same time, we need to also account for what we see in the films and the television shows. Because, as we all know, our players get pissy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so there is the question, gentlemen. To check or not to check? <laughs> uh. What is it you said, Dave? The, the, in the chat, they ever said the speed of plot? The speed of plot, yes. And sometimes you do have to move at the speed of plot. Uh, I mean, and I'll be the first to admit it. I, I don't make my players roll for astrogation every time they need to travel somewhere. Um, why? Because sometimes I, I just, I need the game to move at the speed of plot. Um, few players complain when the GM says it takes, you know, X days to get somewhere. Unless, and this is the big unless, you, you, you have a big time pilot or a navigator in the group who has really focused on astrogation. In that case, doing this too frequently will very frequently, leave that player completely out in the cold. Um, have you have you guys had counter that problem before? Where you've had a player get, I mean, pissed about speed no. of plot movement? I, you, I know you haven't, Dave. But, Phil? I've never had a PC who focused on space travel, who made the fact, you know, getting through hyperspace their thing. Um, I mean, the game I've got running right now, I've got a PC who's worked her intellect up to seven, and she's a Doros. So, seven. to say, hyperspace is not a problem for that group. I thought six was the max. Brain implant. Oh, God. Yep. Yep. That's like, Brain implant. That's like she's the smartest person in the galaxy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and because she's a Doro, she basically... We, we've... It's legit that she's able to, you know, basically almost uh, navigate on the fly herself. <laughs> like she is an astromech, basically? Yes, yeah, exactly. She can memorize a couple uh, a couple points, like, okay, we can do that, carry the four times N. We're good, let's go. Okay. Um, but I've never had someone who is like, no, 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 I, we, I, I want to do astrogation, I want to do astrogation. Okay. You know, that that's just hasn't been a thing. And this is, that's pretty common. Um mm. And, and honestly, I think it's because a lot of people view this as really a one-trick skill um, that they're not used to the GM calling upon. Right. Um, so, I mean, here's the deal. Normally, you really want your players to make an astrogation check under only one circumstance and one circumstance only. 
when the check matters. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when, when are times, guys, that, that, that an astrogation check matters? Under fire. Under fire. Under fire is one good one. I mean, when, when you're under a deadline, you've got to get a certain piece of cargo or you've got to get somewhere to steal something because the meetup is X at, at X time. Dude, so time, I, so time is a critical factor. Yes, yes. Which I want to bring up because we mentioned this earlier on that the game, uh, friends like these, the, the adventure friends like these just got released. In that scenario, your travel time matters. See, you're hit. under a deadline to get stuff done in multiple systems around the the subject of the of the subject of the game. So how much time you spend in hyperspace drastically ima- affects how close you are to your deadline. See there, and there you go. So when t- you know, I'm, you know what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a. Uh... I'm seeing a in, a in a campaign where all of a sudden to to appease somebody who may have the astrogation check, you put in a uh, contest of sorts where they're they're doing their stuff, but part of it is shrouded in the cloak of some kind of scavenger hunt. <laughs> oh, I love that idea! I love it, scavenger hunt. Um, also, you know, uh, the idea of a ship race has been a fairly common plot, you know, point. Um, in various adventures over the, over the years, you know, we're going to do a ship race, but usually these are sublight races, right? To just show how, how awesomely maneuverable the ship is. I think an interstellar race is phenomenal. I mean, at that point, you know, it's, I'm bringing my, my, my class 0.75 hyperdrive to the party, you know, and, and at that point, having a completely badass navigator matters. Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) the amazing race, the amazing race, dude. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's Swift draws in chat. The Kessel Run in a less than twelve parsecs. See that that right there. That is astrogation. Twelve parsecs. That's yes. right. It's like fourteen. Han- fourteen parsecs. Fourteen. That that's that's the thing. Han was bragging about his skill as a navigator when he made that comment. Um, yep. He's saying he's saying I mapped a route through the Kessel. I did the Kessel Run in less less than less than fourteen parsecs. He's like, what? That's stupid. No. So I mean, so there's that. So okay. You make the check when time is a critical factor because you you want advantage or triumphs because it can seriously cut down your time in hyperspace. Um, when you're being pressured, as you said, pursued, and you got to make that calculation when you're being shot at, I think you said, Dave. Um, the other one for me, when it matters, is when you're intentionally trying to do something crazy or attempting to discover something new. Like, I want to try and find a new hyperspace route or go somewhere I haven't before or I'm going to try and do some wicked wonky hyperspace maneuver, then a check is definitely called for. Um, and when you make these checks, Gamer Nation, make them interesting, okay? You you know when you're planning your adventure ahead of time, if your players are likely going to have to go to hyperspace, and you know if they're going to need to make a check, pre-plan your outcomes for despair and threat, Okay? Threat, threat doesn't have to mean increased travel time. It certainly can. But maybe you have some other interesting outcomes. And despair? You better have some really interesting outcomes for despair. Maybe something happens to the ship in hyperspace. Maybe, um, uh, maybe they come out of hyperspace, um, in a really dangerous and unexpected situation, like an asteroid field. Or, you know, oh my god, where's Alderaan? Okay. <laughs> um, and they, they start getting rocked by asteroids. Um, <clears throat> I know it's, uh, uh, this is, this is totally off notes at this point, but I- I'm thinking about guys, you know, interesting scenarios you can do with multiple threat or despair. 
um, on on a uh, on on a on a check. It doesn't have to be directly related to the check itself. It could be, um, you know, uh, I, I ran it. Dave, Dave, do you recall um, one of our old campaigns? We ran through, and while you guys were in hyperspace, the ship started to lose power. And you guys discovered that because uh, the pilot was grief-stricken and you guys didn't check the ship properly before you made the jump to light speed, you guys had a Minoc infestation you were unaware of. I remember that. You remember that? And you guys had to go out onto the hull in hyperspace and clean off these Minocs? Um, just just hellishly dangerous. So, I mean, it set up a whole new encounter with a whole lot of danger, you know, off of it was a different system. But in this system, it would have been, that would have been triggered by a despair, for example. Um... Any other really creative things off the cuff, guys, for for lots of threat or despair when you're doing this these kinds of checks? Um, quite simply, you where, where you it has to do with where you exit. I mean, you could exit quite simply. You could exit at far enough away from a planet, or you could exit into the middle of Imperial patrol. See, yeah, that's the other thing. Is even even if your calculations are great and there's no geographical hazard, maybe you just happen to land right in front of an Imperial Patrol. Exactly. Or Pirate Patrol. Pirates. 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 Despair. You... It is... It's often been referenced, going all the way back to the West End Games days, that pirates would take and tractor beam large asteroids into common hyperspace routes, in hopes of, like, as a, as a dumb, as a poor man's interdictor cruiser. To bring a asteroid out into the, uh, tow an asteroid, a big asteroid, out into a hyperspace lane, and a ship that comes out of hyperspace too early will detect the mass, I'm sorry, will detect the mass shadow and come out of hyperspace too early. Now, they're not doing this in the middle of space, they're doing this in system where they know, okay, this is a common vector for planet, for ships to come in. If we tow an asteroid out here, we might get an occasional ship to get yanked out of hyperspace you know, one astronomical unit, two astronomical units away from where they were supposed to go, and now we've got them, and now we can take them out. Yeah, sitting ducks, ambush. Yeah, yeah. Yep. throwing out a net, basically. Um, yeah. I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. Now, the other thing to ensure, Gamer Nation, that you have this kind of, of, of threat scenario, especially, use setback dice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't really talked about this yet, but we need to. Also because for there are certain talents, specifically Galaxy Mapper, that remove setback dice from Astrogation Check. And, and what is it we always say about these talents that remove setback dice? You are robbing the player and their decision if you don't give them setback dice to remove. Yep. So, use setback dice. Um, sometimes... It's not quite warranted to fully raise difficulty on an astrogation check. But if there's still a hitch in the giddy-up and a hink you want to represent, use a setback die. Um, anything circumstantial that, for, from an astrogation standpoint, might warrant a setback die or two. Um, things that come to mind immediately, flying into a known dangerous area. Not flying out of, because we have rules for that, and it's, an inc- it's a full increase to your difficulty, Right. When you're being mm-hmm. shot at, but you know, okay, I'm about to go, I'm about to, I'm about to drop out into a war zone. You better believe I'm going to give you a setback die for that, right? Um, yeah. Uh, trying to avoid detection, uh, upon entry or exit from hyperspace. Okay. You, you setback die. Why not? Um, having a ship that's not damaged, but maybe has a lingering crit. Okay. 
<laughs> so I'm not going to fully upgrade your, uh, fully uh, increase your difficulty, but I might throw a setback die or two at you. Um, here's a good one that will come up in our later discussion. Having to make a check for multiple ships. Phen- mm. Phenomenal reason to throw a setback die or two in there. Because you know, you know, when it comes to fleet actions, they've got one master astrogator who's making this check, right? And they're, they're oh, yeah. and they're linking their Nava computers together. You know, that's, that's how they do it. But if I gotta manage a fleet's movements, you better believe I'd be throwing setback die in there. You gotta believe it. Yeah, multiple ships. Th- that happens all. That happens a lot. It's when you've got PCs who are mostly in one transport, and you've got one or two who are in fighters, and they all want to. Oh, let's all jump out and jump in together. Something like that. It's going to add some additional degree of difficulty. Exactly. Um, and then lastly, I, I will throw uh, setback dice in when my players are trying to make the calculation as a rush job. Okay. Um, not. Like, like, not, not, that's not one of things like, yeah, like, yeah, you're under pressure. Okay. That's one thing you're being shot at. But like, if you, if you intentionally try and compute this as fast as you possibly can, that's going to lead to some setback dice for you. Okay. And Dave, that leads me to really our next point of discussion. And maybe you can take us into it because one of the things that a lot of listeners and fans and gamers are confused on is how long it actually takes to make an astrogation check. Okay, well, in that case, the funny thing is it's not really covered by the rules. So, and this is by design. It's it's entirely up to, it's incumbent on the GM to adjudicate this. So, you got to understand a standard hyperspace calculation usually takes a handful of minutes. Something complex might take longer, the only time that, you know, time of check really matters is, of course, when you're in combat or, you know, you're trying to make an escape. You know, in this case, our, our, our learned recommendation is two rounds per difficulty level of the check. So for most check where it matters, this is going to be four rounds. Difficulty dies, two purples. Um, one for base, one for quick calculations under dress. Yeah. There you go. Boom. So four, it's, uh, four rounds. I think it's a pretty good barometer, really, that allows for some extra successes, and, and, and you can cut down on the time that's needed, and you can make those successes meaningful. So, you know, you, you get some advantage, whatever the case is, and all of a sudden, instead of four rounds, it's going to be two rounds or three rounds. So, yeah, you can do that. Exactly. Um, and this, that that is, it, it's, I mean, Phil, have you, ha, I mean, how how have you managed it? Because that's my barometer. And in the games I play with Dave too, that's the barometer we've, we've used where when you gotta make that check in a combat situation, I, I do roughly two rounds per purple dive difficulty and it, it, it's, it's worked shockingly well. Um, shockingly. Shockingly. Shockingly well. Um, have you, I mean, do, do you run differently in your games? What, what kind of time limits do you normally take for yours, for your checks? When it's mattered, um, I, I've gone with, I, I, I don't know where I read this, but I thought it was a, maybe it was a saga thing and, but I always went with 10 rounds minus the number of successes you got. That's a really interesting suggestion. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. 10 rounds minus the number of successes you get, because if it's an easy check, odds are you're going to layer on 
you, you you get a good astrogator. Never mind Lency, my my astrogation with legs and and arms and doros and whatever. Uh, you if you have an a easy or an average check, and you've got someone who's just a good intellect with all kinds of bonuses layered on it from like a nav computer and all sorts of other good stuff. You could score four or five successes on an astrogation check and not have anything to do with those extra successes. Except reduce the amount of time it takes you to actually make that calculation and for you guys to be ready to go. So you've gone from ten rounds down to five rounds at that point. Exactly. Interesting, interesting. And you see, that actually, I, I want to try that out because that meshes out really well. Like when I have players that say, I want to rush the job, I want to try and get out of here as fast as I can. There you go. Then you can say, okay... You know, maybe pare down, okay, we'll take two rounds off for, or, or two rounds or three rounds off for every setback you know, die. Every, every setback die you throw onto your difficulty. Or increase of difficulty or whatnot. Yeah. You know, maybe setback die for one round, difficulty die for two. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I, I like the idea of setback dice because, again, it gives validity to Galaxy Mapper. And it makes. True, it true. Makes, okay. okay. So there you go. Yeah. You want to rush the job, extra drew gear of difficulty. And that, and that makes sense. Yeah, that makes the navigator and others who have Galaxy Mapper be like, oh, ha, 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 I can rush this job. I don't care about the setback die is gone. Right? So. When would you consider upgrading the check? Okay. So, the, you upgrade the check, the check when you get to hyperspace craziness. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, and this is actually a really good segue, Phil, <laughs> to talk about one of the main reasons that we got this request was because of the crazy hyperspace shenanigans that have presented themselves in The Force Awakens and Rogue One. Okay. Shenanigans. Shenanigans. Oh, God. I remember a year ago when, when, um, Force Awakens came out. I was just sitting there and at various points throughout that movie, I'm just thinking of my PC parties going, crap. Now they're going to want to jump out of hyperspace stations. Crap. Now they're going to want to jump into the atmosphere of a planet. Crap. Crap. And they can totally do it. But this is the reason you upgrade. Okay? So yep. I want to talk about two points of hyperspace craziness that we see from the two most recent films that people are concerned about. And they say the rules don't represent these or these, don't, or these aren't represented in the rules. And I think that's completely incorrect. And I will talk about why. So, I want to talk about jumping like boss. <laughs> we see, we see Han in episode seven do some crazy, crazy astrogation feats. Um, uh, the most egregious of which is, as you say, Phil, literally jumping back into real space in Atmo <laughs> and behind the defensive perimeter of Starkiller Base. Um, yep. Stunts like that is not only possible in the rule set, but I actually encourage it, okay? Now, as we've already talked about, generating a triumph is enough to let you jump into orbit of a planet, okay? Not just in the system, but right into planetary orbit. What about two triumphs? Could you could you jump in Atmo at that point? Why not? What about three triumphs? Hmm. Okay. Okay, but what about a player, like Han's player, who wanted to do this by planning for it? Now, without it just being a side effect of rolling two or three triumphs, I want to plan to do this, like Han's player did. How can he do it? By coming to the GM and, and saying, JJ, I want to do this. And the GM says, okay, I'll totally let you, and I'm going to upgrade your difficulty 
twice. <laughs> and keep in mind, 65-year-old Han Solo is probably running, what, three yellow, maybe three yellow, one green astrogation pool at that point? Maybe better? Yeah, probably. Okay, I mean, he's the most legendary smuggler in the galaxy. Um, or was it a war hero? Huh. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, man, a stunt like that's probably worth two upgrades to difficulty. And what happened? Han succeeded, but he rolled a despair, which is why the Falcon crashed onto Starkiller Base after arrival. That sounds legit. Okay, so, boom. This is, this is why you, why you upgrade, okay, difficulty. Um, another is to potentially, like, really say, okay, I want to try and accelerate my hyperspace travel or find a new route or something like that, which leads us to the other piece of hyperspace crazy shenanigans that we see in the films. I mean, guys, is the galaxy really that small of a place? <laughs> Well, no. you know, when you take the space-time continuum and you fold it upon itself, you know, you get these uh, possibilities of being able to travel very quickly. So, whatever. It's the speed of plot, man. Come on. <laughs> well, okay, this is this is the thing. To some extent, in Episode 7, but very heavily in Rogue One, and also in Rebels, we seem to be CPU see people making very fast trips through hyperspace that don't even remotely align with table 7-4 in our core rulebooks. I mean, nope. the the most egregious example in Rogue One is Admiral Raddus is like, he's like, where's Admiral Raddus? He's left. He's gone to fight. And he shows up in system, what, maybe an hour or two later? Hours, yeah. Hours later? Um, so... I mean, what's the deal? I mean, D- Dave, are are you what what's are you like you said? I mean, do you think GMs JJ and Gareth are just rolling with the speed of plot on that or Yeah, no, I think they are and it's and it's from a uh here again, from a theatrical device standpoint. You have to separate yourself for a second and you have to mitigate your players' expectations. You have to separate yourself for a second from the theatrical shenanigatry to be able to say, all right, we need to we need to have some kind of semblance of rules around this, and we can't rely on Hollywood to tell us exactly that this is acceptable. Gotcha. Um, but what do triumphs? What, well, yeah. What if that doesn't sit it's well triumph, with me? Right, Admiral, what's his nuts? Rolled four triumphs. That's how he. Can, that's how come he. <laughs> that's how come he got there so fast. Well, well, the raw does allow for crazy feats of hyperspace navigation speed as long as a triumph is rolled. Um, and I'm gonna go out, guys. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I'm gonna say that Admiral Raddus likely had one astrogator sharing his calculations and coordinate entries with the fleet. It's pretty sensible to ensure they all arrive at the same time, which they do. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Raddus had some top-notch, big-brain, Mon Calamari astrogator on his flagship with a hella awesome pool that would likely easily generate triumph. Bolstered by the fact that they're traveling to a known place, uh, with most likely a heavily established hyperspace route, uh, and they're making their calculations to get there on, without being shot at. They're not under any duress. So they're probably looking at a single purple difficulty on that check. So There you go. Hell yeah. He probably rolled a uh, triumph or more to get there on time. And you too can be Rich Parnell. There you go. But okay, Phil, if I don't like that answer, 
Can I modify table 714? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Honestly, it's probably not going to affect your game much at all if you just simply cut those travel times in half. Okay. It's not... It's it's not that huge a deal. It's not anything you really need to sweat about if it's going to make your game flow better. And that's ultimately what the uh, what we're trying to do. See, now, I don't. Hey, know. don't forget. That's right. Chat has it right. Episode three. Palps went from uh, Coruscant to Mastafar in minutes. I'm tr- yeah, that's true. And they're not even minutes. Minutes. No, yeah. See, see, and, and <laughs> Mustafar is way the hell out. There. There's a way the hell out there. I have no idea where Scarif is in relation to Yavin. Yeah, no clue yet. No clue yet. No clue yet. But if they're in the same sector, that's problem solved, man. Could be a couple hours to get there. Um, right. But 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 we don't know. No, so not yet. okay, Gamer Nation. In conclusion, <laughs> astrogation is a sadly underutilized skill in game in these games. Um, it, as Dave said, its ability to discover secrets about galactic geography, commerce, trade routes. And as I hope we've imparted, create fun impacts to your sessions is something I think more GMs, myself included, should encourage and that players should request. Okay. Um, treating hyperspace not just as a plot point, but as a tool, a, a skill and a check that you can use to make things more interesting. Um, and you know, hopefully we've, we've a little bit, a bit of a spark in you for that. Um, and I think, uh, guys, un- obviously, we had, a, we had a dual motive for this because understanding more about astrogation and, and hyperspace will hopefully serve us very well for our next episode where we are going to dig deep into a well, isn't that special, uh, on the navigator from Savage Spirits. Yep. Uh, so, a uh, bit of a, bit of a one-two punch. Um, so be sure to cue this up and maybe listen to it again, uh, at least the meat, uh, before, uh, you listen to next week's episode. Um, as I'm sure these, these lessons will, will come into play again. So. Oh yeah. Very good. Very, very good. Well now, gentlemen, I think it's time to go somewhere that we have not gone in far too long. Hit me! Let me take that back, huh? Let me find what you need. <laughs> oh! So welcome to Watto's Black Market, where the skeezy scoundrels of the Outer Rim Territories can procure the weapons and gear to make a living on the edge of that there empire a little more tolerable. And tonight's trip to Watto's is an unusual one brought to us by our very own GM Phil. Yes, that's right. It's been, gosh, what, almost six months since we were last in Watto's shop? It has been. Golly geez, <laughs> Beaver. Golly, golly gee, Beaver. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I tend to get a lot of gift cards for the holidays, so I got a bunch of credits in my pocket burning a hole in it. So uh, I think it's about time we check back in with our favorite Tatooine merchant and pick up some new tech. Yes. Now, after the dumpster fire of 2016... <laughs> I thought it would be good to pick up something that could help me avoid a future disaster with a tool useful for preventative maintenance. 
I wanted to get something that could help me detect unseen threats, and Watto came through with the PX7 heat sensor. Ooh. This little, this little bad boy can be found on page 50 of Keeping the Peace. The sensor has an encumbrance of three, so it's not a discrete device, but it is fairly man-portable. It's useful for finding any heat-emanating life forms and for isolating certain kinds of damage to machines. It's marvelous at performing both actions at once, such as trying to find vermin on a infested starship. It's a worthy investment for any freighter captain to have for one of these. A Minoc infestation at the wrong time can really foul up a trip through hyperspace. As we said, what, what, yep, mm -hmm. yep. Now, they are somewhat hard to find. That's the problem. Uh, they do have a rarity of seven, so trying to find, a, uh, find one of these things on the outer rim is going to be tricky. But since it only costs 250 credits, if you can find one, it's definitely worth picking up. Dude, with a rarity like that, you could just pick it up when you find it and resell it on, on you know, eBay, Star Wars eBay. <laughs> right? Make ourselves some money. Uh, <laughs> money! Well, money, but okay, but dude, so this is cool. Mechanically, what does it do for you? Okay, so the heat, uh, PX7 heat sensor. It adds two boost dice to perception checks to find heat emanating objects within short range. So, you know, about roughly out to about 12 meters. It also adds one boost die to mechanics checks to remove critical hits from starships and critical injuries from droids. What? Yep. While finding vermin and weak points in damaged machinery is useful, the PX-7 can also be leveraged into many other useful applications. Um, but really, the one where you're using it to remove critical hits and critical injuries from starships, it makes it an invaluable tool for and completely worthy investment for any starship mechanic, droid tech, or any other mechanically inclined individual who finds themselves pressed into such a role. So you've got this heat scanner, and it's able to detect variances in temperature. And as anyone who's sort of been around things like home inspections or any of those, you know, uh, do-it-yourself shows on, uh, on the DIY network will tell you, you can see some pretty interesting things behind walls and floors and ceilings with a heat sensor. No joke. So you can use it to scan such uh, places in any structure and look for voids in the wall, which is highly useful for locating secret compartments or other hidden objects. For military applications, if you're defending a position and don't have enough personnel to cover all avenues, you could hook up a heat sensor to an alarm, or perhaps even a bomb, and cover a certain area of the battlefield. Um, those are just two of the other applications that you could come up with other than simply using it to detect, you know, find heat sources and, and heat emanating objects or for, uh, for finding critical injuries and healing critical injuries on mechanics and, and droids. Gentlemen, do you have any other suggestions or ideas for what you can use that heat scanner for? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, first of all, it's a poor man's sense. Yes, it is. Um, it's one of those things, I mean, I, I know it's encumbrance three, so it's like a unit, but it's one of those things that I could hold this to a door and, you know, oh my God, it, are there people in the room? Is there someone on the other side of the door? If this thing, oh, fun if this thing functions like an infrared camera, basically, I mean, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, you, you totally see that. And I'm going to throw one other crazy idea at you. If I was a GM, I would totally disallow this or make it really hard to do, but I love the idea. Um, Captain America, the winter soldier opening scene where Cap and uh, the uh, 
uh, strike team parachutes down and they take over that ship that Batroc the Leaper and his boys had taken over. Yeah. There was a scene where they, uh, the terrorists have all the shield agents hold up in like the galley and the shield agents are outside and they have this gun that basically has an infrared scope on it to look through the walls and they're tracking a target. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would get a big gun with massive amounts of breach. <laughs> and, and I would attach this thing to the gun or uh, like duct tape the gun to it, basically use them in concert. Maybe have a spotter, you know, next to me holding the damn thing. And I would, uh, you know, you could, you could perform a breach maneuver with this. You could shoot, I mean, it's short range, but you could shoot someone through a wall. Oh, absolutely. And with breach to take care of it, uh, you know, any, any type of, of, of armor the wall may have had or soak the wall may have. Um, just saying. Glorious. So yeah, water hooked me up. Dude. Got myself a heat sensor, so uh, I'll able to be able to see uh, be able to see dumpster fires from at least a, a short range away. <laughs> dumpster fires. Oh God. Um. Wow. Uh. Very good. I'm glad we returned to Watto's. Uh. It's been far too long. So thank you for that. Far too long. Thank you for that, Phil. You're welcome. Now it is time because. It's been a whole episode where we didn't have this, and the questions have been piling up for some messages from the edge. He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. So welcome to Messages from the Edge, our regular show segment where we take the time to answer your game and rules questions about the system. How uh, can people get us these questions, I ask thee, Dave? Well, the easiest way to do is to go to our forums, post up a message there. d20radio.com slash forums is where you'll find it. Over to the Order 66 podcast boards, you'll find Messages from the Edge thread that is pinned. Of course, you can also email us questions, GM Chris, GM Phil, GM Dave, all at d20radio.com. You can also, if you're brave enough, like some people here today, leave us a question on the voicemail, D20 Radio hotline, 262-D20-RADIO, that's 262-320-7234, or you can, if we have time to get to it, we'll get to a question that was launched on Facebook today. We, we, totally, so, we totally have time to get to it. Um, yep. So, yeah, superb. Um, okay, uh, so our first question tonight, uh, we have three, three calling questions tonight, uh, from the D20 Radio Hotline. Um, and, uh, our first calling question tonight is from the rough and tumble Brax, and I will play it for you now. This is for use Order 66, guys. Yeah, I'm Brax. Haven't heard of yous. But old Jad said you know a lot. So, yesterday, I got in a scrap with Delia. We trained together years back. She has one of them Zerka combat knives. You know, double-edged, straight at the tip, serrated the rest of the way. Goes in real smooth, makes a mess. Yeah. 
I'm using the Prax Arms S1 Van Blade. Handy. So, I slice in her head, right? And she uses a move Old Master Strectatus. A parry. Yeah, nice move. I'm impressed. So, she comes in low, right? And I try the same move. But it don't work. I got the technique. Give me a knife and I can do it all day. But Chris, me if it don't work with that band blade. Even though it's at least as big as that knife. What's the deal? Very interesting. Um, I love the in-character stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's good. It's cool. It's, it's, very, it's very good. It's very good. Um, so who wants to take a crack at this answer? Uh, Dave, Phil, do you, what do you guys want it? Ah, uh, what the heck? You know what? I don't know. Go for it. Um, are you talking about the fact that Brax is lamenting the awesomeness of the Perry talent? Yes. All right. So how many trees is this available in? Uh, a lot. A lot of trees. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, um, at least What's five it? or six, I think. Is yeah. It, what, so, what page um, is it on? One forty nine. One forty nine. Force and Destiny. Um, it just so happens that we have that called out. It is. It is. It is. Atari Striker, Makashi Duelist, Naman Disciple, Protector, Sheen Expert, Shicho Knight, and Sorosu Defender all have access to the talent. And soon, to, soon to be the martial artist will have access to the talent. I would think. So, all right, so uh, let's see user who's hit with Brawl, Melee, or Lightsaber attacks up for three strains as an incidental reduce the damage of a hit by two plus his hit ranks and parry before applying the soak. So, you know, it's become a staple of good melee fighters in the system, and um, but the talent can really only be used when the wield, when the, when the character's wielding a lightsaber or, or melee weapon. Mm. So poor Brax is using the amazing Prax Arms S1 Van Blades. Which is uh, Dangerous Covenants, page forty-eight, and uh, they're basically Durasteel fan braces with retractable dagger-sized blades. They're brawn plus one in damage, like kind of like brass knuckles. Crit three, defensive one, and if they're worn as a pair, you get Sunder one, an accurate one. They're quite awesome. But since they have, per the text, dagger-sized blades coming out of them, and I can use parry with an actual dagger, why can't I use parry with firm? With uh, with the van blades, even though they're a brawl weapon. Well, you know what, dude. The short answer is because these things are nasty enough as they are. Uh, they're not classified as a melee weapon, but a brawl weapon. They're not balanced or constructed as a melee weapon is. They don't have a they don't have a tang or supportive hilt or anything needed to make parry work. Per raw, they're brawl weapons, so they don't because reasons. Okay. <laughs> Having said that, as a GM, I'd personally not mind if a PC with the parry talent used Van Blades to parry. I'd allow it, but that's just me. I, you know, and this is a yes, you know, this is a yes and system. I answered this question on Facebook earlier today because it's the yes and system. You want to try and find ways to make it work. Yeah. I look at it this way. Dangerous Covenants came out in that first year that the game was out. There wasn't even a parry talent in existence yet. So looking at it from that perspective, I would certainly see, or I certainly could see, 
some text being added to these van blades that say that they can be used with the parry talent. Yeah. I think that's viable. I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, yeah. rules is written. They don't because reasons. Um, but I really don't have a problem with it. And if your GM, uh, Brax does have an issue with it, ask if maybe you could use the parry talent, um, maybe with like one extra strain cost or something like that. Again, yes and, right? Sure. Um, so, yeah. Or actually, what you could, you could easily say is that there's an inherent, you know, if, well, no, I guess I could say that, um, you know, maybe make it some way that something is, is because you're pairing these things so close to you that, no, no. I, I, at first, I was thinking like have something because the fact that you're actually pairing these things with your forearm that it's much easier for you to accidentally injure yourself or do something along those lines. But there's really just no way to really come up with it elegantly enough. So no extra rules. Just I, I'd let them do it just as is. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I, I'd honestly be fine with that too. So yeah. so yeah. So practice up in the arena, Brax. Just it's there. It's there. Okay, our next question tonight is another uh, call-in question uh, from Darth Pseudonym about conflict awarding. Greetings, gentlemen. This is Darth Pseudonym, and I have a question about morality that came up in my last game session. Out of four player characters, three of them were in favor of stealing the two swoop bikes belonging to the gangers that they just knocked out. The last PC is an ex-con artist who's trying to walk the straight and narrow, and she was opposed to the theft. The three who are in on it definitely get the three conflict, but what do I do about the fourth player? On the one hand, I don't think she should get the conflict, since she was opposing the action, and she can't reasonably stop the others without making a huge issue out of it. On the other hand, she will ultimately benefit from the stolen goods later when the party needs planetary vehicles, and while her protest was honest, I don't like setting the precedent that might encourage players to uh, cynically avoid conflict by making a token protest against an action that they know is going to happen anyway and that they're going to benefit from. For what it's worth, one of the players pointed out that conflict isn't evil points, it's just conflict, and she was definitely conflicted about the party stealing the bikes, but that didn't sit very well with the player. So what do you think? Should the last player get conflict or not? And if so, how much? The book does list, list one conflict as the suggested cost for standing aside while another player commits a serious offense, but theft doesn't rise to that level of seriousness, so I don't think that applies. Thank you, and I never listen. Um, dude. Uh, Phil, do you want to take this one, man? Cause sure. This is interesting. Absolutely, and, and and this, to be fair, is a weakness of my own. Um, I sometimes have a huge problem trying to introduce conflict-generating things into my game. I sometimes forget to do it, and then wonder why all my PCs are light-side paragons. <laughs> uh, but this kind of thing is going to happen, and frankly, you've explained the rules pretty well, and I think answered your own question. She really didn't do anything wrong. She disagreed with the wrong action. Truly, she didn't try to stop it, but as you say, the theft is from gangers, not murder. Uh, the examples in the book don't call out standing by and letting theft happen as a conflict-worthy event for a reason. It's not conflict-worthy. So, I get your concern, but you could be making things too complicated. You don't have to penalize a player now for something that might happen in the future. Penalize the action in the future 
if and when it occurs, if this becomes a pattern, then start handing out conflict. As you say, they're not evil points, she's just conflicted. But seriously, wait till it becomes an actual issue. You don't necessarily have to do it now. Any of any other thought on that, guys? I don't know. Do you guys think Anakin Skywalker earned conflict for stealing a speeder bike to go chase after Padme's assassin? Uh no. Especially considering I, I think I think he crashed the speeder, didn't he? No, yeah. he landed. He did, landed did, it. did he land it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, he didn't land it. Obi Wan landed it. Yeah. He jumped out of it. Okay, Obi Wan probably put the speeder back, but still, like, is like, is that is that a conflict worthy event? And he yes. did, and he did the stealing. I mean, to I me, guess. I to guess me, yes. theoretically, the, yes. It's a conflict worthy event. The question is, did Anakin care? This is a good but, question. No, he didn't care. To him, it was, I need to chase after them. I need a speeder. There's a speeder right there. I'm gonna take it. Boom. And he's gone. He's gone. Now, he didn't look around for anyone to talk to. He didn't look around for a vehicle that was was that had someone on it, so he couldn't run up and do the whole Jedi business. I need your speeder. He just took it and left. <laughs> now <laughs> that's I, theft. It is theft. Now I have no doubt Obi Wan probably took it back. Okay? Sure, because it's Obi. But if Obi didn't take it back, does Obi deserve conflict? Um. Uh... Do we give no. conflict for Ben? No. I, I think you're right. I think in one instance he he lets it. He, he just sort of like shakes his head and does what. He, I guess it's how, how it depends on how he handles it. If he tries to admonish Anakin and says, "Dude, you can't do that. You, you can't just steal speeders," or if he doesn't say something and it becomes a pattern. Then yeah, he might earn a conflict point or two. Yeah, but I guess if Anakin doesn't return it and Obi Wan doesn't return it, um, no, I, I think I agree with Dave. It's it it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't be con- it's not conflict worthy. I agree with both of you, but it's one of those things that if in their adventures together, if Anakin has this habit of stealing speeders and Obi Wan rolls his eyes every time and says, "You really shouldn't do that," okay, it's one of those things. Like like if they're in a situation and Obi Wan's like Anakin. We had, we need to have a way to catch him. And Anakin looks looks towards the speeder. Anakin, you really shouldn't steal a speeder. And then, like you know, with the understanding that mm, I'm going to tell you no, but I'm telling you this because I fully expect you to steal a speeder. Yeah, he's going to get conflict for that when it becomes a pattern. But that's the key thing, right? That's the key thing. I mean, but just one time, hell no. I'm concerned, pseudonym, that you say you're worried about that this might happen. Dude, don't, Phil, you said it best. Don't penalize your players for something that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> a player. Don't penalize a player with the expectation of reigning in something that may happen. It may, you don't, don't do that. You're going to make people mad. <laughs> Just saying. So. Okay. Precisely. Okay. Our next question. Um, is another call-in, this time from GM Boyer, uh, who has a meaningful question about players we all know too well. Greetings, GMs of the Order 66 podcast. This is GM Boyer with a question about player management. I ran a game for a few new players not too long ago, 
and dove right, in, right into player creation, character creation, and rules explanation. But I ran into immediately some misgivings. Two of the players wanted to create only glorified, fantastic versions of themselves. One of them often acts like, and wanted to be, a self-righteous mystical Jedi. The other often acts like, and wanted to be, a self-righteous unrivaled sniper. My question is this. To what extent do I encourage and prod players to be something different? There was nothing inherently wrong with their choices, but they were kind of boring. And I knew that starting level XP wouldn't give them the fantasy that they wanted. I tried to gently prod them to be something different, but to avoid annoying them, I said, okay, you can be it. And we just proceeded as they desired. Well, the game suffered as a result. It was kind of boring. The other player was something entirely unique and added a breath of fresh air to it. But I, I do want to know, how do I encourage players to step out of the stereotypes? I know that there will be times when you just want to be a certain idea for a character. But how do I say, this is Star Wars for goodness sakes. You can be whatever you want. Or should I even? Should I try to get them out of their comfort zones? I'm a fairly new GM, so I don't know exactly. So your advice would be greatly helpful. Thank you, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. It's not really a Star Wars problem. No, it's really not. Um, I mean, this is this is the bane of the GM, man. I mean, one of many banes of the GM. And Boyer, I like, I think, I think you're going to find this issue, as Dave says, really in any RPG, any edition, any system, and and most. I have to have a ranger with a powerful bow. I have, dude. I have gamed with people. It's like. I used to game with a gal who, how, how do I put this tactfully? She was a hippie. It didn't matter what we were playing. She would make a hippie. <laughs> it's like, we're, we're playing d and I'm going to make a druid. I'm going to make a druid, and she's going to have an animal companion, and her name will be Starfire. It's like, it's like wasn't your last animal companion's name Starfire? Yes! And, <laughs> and like, she would spend every character, well, Starfire doesn't like that. She, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anything about how her character felt. All I knew about was how Starfire felt. Okay? Um, first time we ever played Star Wars with this, with this nice gal, uh, it was, you know, and all her characters were pacifists. That was it. All, every character was a pacifist. So she plays Star Wars. It's like, I'm not, and this is Saga Edition days, I'm not gonna have a gun! You're not going to have a gun? No. You know, <laughs> it's, I was like, okay. Um, okay. Uh, well, they're shooting at you. I tell them that they're erring in their ways. I mean, it was just like four <laughs> campaigns of the, of different systems and the same character again and again. I mean, is this, am I, am I, am I hitting a chord with you guys? Is this a problem you all have experienced as well? Not to the, okay, well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got this one friend who's, who's, um, he, 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 he's a somewhat martial artist and big thing is in the uh, SCA, he's a fencer. Okay. All of his characters are duelists or swordsmen. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All of them. Now, he, ha to be fair, he has sometimes changed it up. Every now and then he'll play a wizard. Every now and then he'll play like some dual wielding, you know, dual wielding, dual pistol wielding gunsmith. 
But nine times out of ten, my buddy Tim is playing a swordsman of some variety of some flavor, be it Jedi or, or rapiers or longswords or whatnot. A lot of humans and elves too, you know. Okay, I think I think, and this this has been brought up in chat um, uh, uh, by 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 Rychek, who says some of this comes with maturity, and I do find it this does. I do find this to be true, and I don't mean like your physical or actual maturity as a person. I mean your maturity as a gamer. It's like when yeah. when you first start gaming, and you've only been gaming for only a few years, typically. I mean, it's all about wish fulfillment and personal idealization. I mean, like, you all know Hudson. You know, he's one of my OG gaming buddies. He's one of our marshals at Gamer Nation Con. When I, when we first started gaming, I mean, for like five or six years, every single character he made was a rogue with an attitude. Every single character. We're playing Star Wars. I'm going to make a scoundrel with an attitude. Okay? That was every single character he made was, was Han Solo. Every character he made, it doesn't matter what system we're playing, was basically Han Solo or a rogue with an attitude. And to his credit, as he matured as a role player, it's like, oh, I'm gonna roll a paladin this time, or I'm gonna, I'm, I wanna do a virtuous Jedi, or, or a technician, or, I mean, he's, he, he's grown, but those early years, man, that was, it was like that. So maybe that's where this is. Um, I guess my, my question to Boyer is, how big of a problem is this for you? I mean, listening to him and the way he describes these players and their characteristics, and you guys can pause and go back and re-listen to it, but it's obvious from your tone of voice that this behavior disgusts you. <laughs> yeah. Um. Why? I mean, if, if it's because these guys are getting bitchy because they can't be uber-awesomes as beginner characters, and that's why it's disgusting you? Then I think it's time to set expectations appropriately, or fuck it, play at night level. <laughs> um, but if it's not that, it just if it just really bothers you, I mean, what what can he do to? I mean, sh- first of all, should he encourage his players to to broaden, or is he overstepping? And it, and if he encourages them, guys, how how can he encourage them to broaden in a way that will actually resonate? Aside from saying, you guys should make different characters, because that won't work. <laughs> right. Ideas? Give him a plot hook in the game. You know, if you know this guy's going to be a... Whatever he's going to be, if he's always going to want to be a pacifist or whatever, or he's always a melee badass, then, hey, you know what? You're going to... This is a space pirate game. You're going to be flying. You really need to consider doing a pilot, but you're going to be in the cockpit most of the time. Yeah, it's like, I'm not going to tell you what to build, but just so you guys know, yeah, you guys are going to be in the cockpit 75% of the time. Okay. Yeah, this is going to be a requirement, right? You're going to uh, you're going to be on a diplomatic mission. You're going to have to have some face-type stuff that, you know, or at least one of you will. Mm, mm. This is, this is, these are good suggestions. And you just keep it off cuff at the start of the game. I like this. I like this. I mean, Phil, anything from you? Ultimately, if you haven't talked to them about it, talk to them about it. I mean, if it if it's got you this riled up, um, and who knows, he could be exaggerating for the sake of the, the phone call. And it, but if, if if it is a situation where you can kind of nail it down to, okay, every single game that I'm going to run, here's what's going to happen. These guys are always going to play this, and and that's not the type of story you want to run. You need to talk to them about it. You need to say, guys, I- I'm going to be frank with you. If you want this big badass gunsmith, or the you know gu- gunslinger, or this or this powerful prominent Jedi, 
this is going to be Age of Rebellion. This isn't really going to fit. I mean, yeah, being useful with guns is going to be great, but you're going to be in a lot of situations where you carrying around your massive assault rifle is going to be a huge detriment. And if you go full board Jedi, you're going to get the best the Empire has in the sector thrown at you. Inquisitor. At the least. So, and 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 tell them you're not going to pull punches. You're, you're, if you want to play these characters, you're not going to be able to play them the way that you've played them before. And go with that. And if they persist on, you know, wanting to get off the ship in, in some core world or at some diplomatic event with this badass heavy combat rifle, or the force user pops saber in a crowded area and just starts going to town on stormtroopers in front of hundreds of witnesses, punish them for that. Now the hit, thing, the, hit, hit, hit them with the heavy plot stick. Yeah, and the thing is, what Dave said, what you said, both revolve around a central point. Communicate. You gotta yeah. communicate with these guys. You gotta tell them, guys, I notice you guys always make these characters, or, you know, hey guys, I'm running this game, and this is the vibe I'm going for, so just to let you know ahead of time, you know, we're gonna be 75% in the cockpit, or there's gonna be a lot of sneaking around, or there's gonna be a lot of FaceTime and a lot of diplomacy in this campaign. Um, I mean, you gotta let them know ahead of time. A, a, we talk about player immaturity and player maturity. GM immaturity versus GM maturity. Uh, so you say you're a new GM, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Boyer. Um, one of the things, a mistake that a new GM will often make is they'll try and punish the player in game for the choices they've made. So it's like, oh, you've made a badass sniper. I'm gonna make sure your bright, your rifle's broken in the first round of combat. Or I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna, you know, you've, you've made a knight character. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, you know, put you in a room that's gonna strip your force powers away. Or I'm, or, or basically I'm gonna engineer a session where none of you guys get to use your cool stuff. And that'll teach you that you made bad characters. I can tell you from, very hard learned personal experience. This will do nothing but piss off your players. Yeah. Swift draw pointed out in the chat. Hit him in the dump stat. That's not really. We we talked about that, and you can do that occasionally, but you occasionally. can't make a habit. Of you can't make habit. Yeah. yeah, you can do it occasionally, and th- and I think that's what Swift draws alluding to as well. It's one of those things that if you have if you have an average session with three strong encounters in it, um. One of those encounters, you know, you hit him in the dump stat. Okay. Uh, maybe every other session. Make a point to show how ineffective their one trick pony is in a certain situation. And that encourages them to cross spec at that point. That encourages them to broaden out and take non career skills. That encourages them to, okay, well, um, maybe, maybe retrain if you allow that. Um, but you just, it's one of those things you gotta be, you gotta be careful with it and understanding. But I think, I, I think Boyer needs to have a, a deep conversation with these guys because it's obvious listening to him that he's really disgusted with this behavior. And I think there's something deeper there <laughs> um, that I think you need to talk with your players about, man. I really yeah. do. So, good question about that. Um, okay, we have, we have time, and we have a, a fourth question, actually... Um, Dave, you dug this up, man. You actually responded to it, so I'm going to let you answer it. Uh, the question came up today on uh, D20 Radio Group, if I'm not mistaken, um, from yeah. jo- from Joshua Isom. 
And, oh, yeah, I was just trolling around on Facebook and saw it. Yeah, and uh, he said, uh, theory crafting idea in the Star Wars universe. Would it be possible to unlock the door with the move power? Yeah. That's a pretty simple question, right? And yeah. So first, we're going to say, Joshua, go listen to episode 83, Move It or Lose It. Yep. We talked about the force power. And short. long answer short, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but yeah, I mean, if it's a switch, if there's a button, if if you know, if it's something that you're going to use the uh, capabilities of of, uh, of a keypad or whatever, yes, you can. But again, if you look at the, if you look at that, if you look at that, uh, or listen to episode eighty three, or go find the uh, the move, and I have no idea what page it's on. I should have pulled it from the Force and Destiny core rulebook, but um, you can do it with some. Uh, control upgrades and such, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can definitely do it. Now, what he was really getting at is that he wanted to be able to do and, and manipulate the lock mechanism from the inside without actually being able to see it. And so then I came back and said, you know, back in the Saga Edition days, it was a written mandate, right? It was rules as written. It had to be line of sight. Now it's not in that. It, line of sight is not absolutely there, but I'm, 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 I'm also telling you that it doesn't say in the rule that your character has to breathe, but they do. And... You know, so I would have a problem with depending on the type of door that we're talking about. And and then uh, John Stevens, of course, uh, you know, came in and said, hey, you know, Obi-Wan, you know, Obi-Wan gave a hand wave and, and closed the door on Camino and all that jazz. And yeah, so it's there. You can do stuff. It's just a matter of, you know, does it make sense? Uh, you know, are, are you trying to get into a bank vault and you're going to use the, the move, the move power to manipulate the tumblers in the safe so that the door opens. Uh, no. Well, Sorry. Maybe. I mean, if you're that damn good, I don't, you know. Yeah, but that that would require the fine manipulation control upgrade. I mean, that that's the definition of that control upgrade right there. And and that's well, and that but that's saying that's something that you would normally manipulate with your fingers like a data pad. This is the inner workings of a lock. You're never going to get in there with your fingers. Well, but I could do yeah, well then how but okay, well, to counter that and just in your specific example, I can use skullduggery to do that. I can use skullduggery to crack a safe and oh yeah yeah make, yeah yeah make yeah, a tumbler, yeah you're right, make, you're all right, right. All right I so, can use, so there's circumstances there, but there's circumstances I think it depends on the circumstances exactly and and your point is well taken like that control upgrade one one of the things we I remember we called out in episode eighty three when we really dug in the move was we said look if this is something you want to do that you could accomplish with a tactile skill like skullduggery or computers or mechanics. And you want to do it at range with the move power, that is where the that last control upgrade for fine manipulation comes in. Which uh to answer your question, Dave, page two ninety eight of the Force and Destiny Core rulebook. There you go, two ninety eight page for one for the most comprehensive version of the move power. Um But no, dude, you're right. It's totally circumstantial. I mean uh I mean, Phil, what are your thoughts on this, man? Absolutely possible with that final control upgrade. Um, it is quite simply just a skullduggery skill check against the normal difficulty of trying to pop that lock. In addition to that, you need to make a force power check and generate at least one force point, plus any additional points needed for things like range or whatnot. Um, and as long as you get that force point you need to activate move, you can make the attempt to pop the lock with skullduggery. Now, if you're trying to do it purely with the force, um, and you don't have, like, the mental tools talent that a couple of talents like the Armorer and the Artisan have, 
Um, I'd probably add an additional degree of difficulty to that or add in setback dice. Could be a great opportunity to add in like literally two or three, even four setback dice. So that someone who has, I know that there's a talent out there that removes uh, setback from Skullduggery that probably doesn't get as much use as it could. Um, but that would that could certainly leverage that talent as well to help offset the fact that you're trying to do this purely with telekinesis, which is kind of difficult when you're you're not using a tool to manipulate it. You're just using the raw power of the force. Now, this is also assuming that you're trying to like do fine work. Like in his example on Facebook, if I recall correctly, he was, he, he responded later and said, "Yeah, I'm thinking of trying to like like slide a latch on the other side of the door." Okay. Well, there's some, you know, and, and I want to talk about that line of sight thing, too, because you mentioned that, Dave. But I, w- I want to say first, look, with the raw power of the force, if you don't care about leaving a mark, you don't need fine manipulation. I don't nope. need, I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to, to manipulate. <laughs> said in the it's like, too. Just it's take like, the thing out the door. It's like, the it's like I, don't, I don't need to manipulate the tumblers on the bank vault. If I'm a, if I'm powerful enough in the force, I can just rip the damn door out and it'll crack the wall and everything else in it. I mean, I mean, I could, I could finally manipulate the slider latch or I could just rip the freaking door off the wall or push it open and break the latch in the process. I mean, and that, that would be covered under the basic move power right there. I mean, that, and let's be fair. Which upgrades are PC going to have for, or probably earlier? <laughs> Strength, magnitude. Um, Gee, I can't. I don't have it up to the point where I can f- manipulate fine objects, but I've got enough power to pick up starships. See, I want to. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna rip this out of the wall. So, I mean, there's, there's that. I mean, move, move tends to get kind of, kind of brute forcey. But okay, Dave, you mentioned this. So I want to come back to it, and I want to get you guys' opinions on it because you're right. There is no hard and fast rule for this in the book. What about line of sight? Okay, I mean, my, uh, my view is this is the yes and system. So if you can't see something and you want to manipulate it, I'm like, uh, okay, maybe we can, but maybe maybe I'll make this an opposed check where it wasn't before. Um, you know, maybe with perception, okay, versus you know versus uh, an inherent difficulty. Um, maybe I'll I'll add setback dice or increase difficulty if it already is an opposed check for whatever reason. Um, if maybe if I'm, I'm trying to affect the person with it, for example. Um. I, 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 I don't know. Or is that too much for you guys? I mean, what are your thoughts? Do you need to be able to see it? Um, it's a, again, I think it's circumstance, right? If, if it's a common, if it's a common object, you know, doors have latches on the other side. No, I don't have a, I don't have a hard, you know where it's at. You can, I don't have a problem with that. As a Jedi, you should be able to do that. I, I got no problem with that. Bill? I think it's... I th- Uh-oh. No, because as you, we've said, in, in previous editions it was you needed to be able to see it, and that was kind of the balancing factor in a lot of things. I think you can sort of, uh, you can sort of do a lot of things blind um, or trying to feel your way around it. Um, I wouldn't even be surprised if the way Obi-Wan opened that door was the fact that he knows that all Kamino access panels are on the left side of the wall on every doorway and he just knew to you know manipulate a, 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 a an amount of force to the left side of the doorway and that would open the door from the inside um, I, I don't I don't need to explain that action because it had no consequence it, it's, exactly. it's it's totally narrative at that point it's not like it's happening in combat or anything is riding on it I mean if a player says yes I use the force to close the door as I as he's describing himself walking through a senatorial chamber I don't. Yeah, sure, fine. <laughs> right. I, I don't. I don't need to justify that through the raw. <laughs> no, 
no, but you, you get what I'm saying. You, you know, it's that whole, you know, can you see the object? Can you manipulate the object? Um, if, if that's the case, then, hey, there's already rules in the system for trying to do something blind. Add setback dice. If it's a skill check, add setback dice. Mm. Yeah. For concealment. And there you go. Okay. So, good questions. Good questions, Gamer Nation. And now it is time to bring an end to our marvelous show. Um, fun discussion, guys. I really enjoyed this one. Um, I just, I, it was weird. And and Phil, Phil, man, you you tagged this for discussion. I'm so glad you did. I don't think about hyperspace enough. I don't think I just, as a game master, I don't think about astrogation enough. I mean, I'm 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 part of the problem. <laughs> Um, you know, I, uh, you know, so I, this was a, a fun topic to discuss and it was one of those things that, that I was really pleased to, 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 to bring out and, and really do a show on. And, um, as we said, guys, our next episode, Sunday, January 15th, um, are you going to be in for that, Dave, or are you going to be, uh, off taking your kid back to school? Um, I think that's the weekend. No. No, I, I think I'm going the weekend of the 21st because that was okay. a Patreon thing. Okay, I can't that's right. do that weekend for Patreon, that's right. so I that's think right. I will be back for that weekend. Okay, good, good. I think okay. I will be here for that weekend. Okay, good. So Sunday, January 15th, Gamer Nation, um, we're going to be riding that astrogation wave. We'll be taking a detailed look at the Seeker's navigation specialization um, uh, from uh, Savage Spirits, so we're really looking forward to that. Um, and obviously, guys, if you're enjoying the show uh, and you want us to talk about specific topics, we want to know what you want us to talk about. Become a member of the Gamer Nation. Head to d20radio.com. Click on the forums link. Register. Post your mind. Head to the Order 66 boards. Tell us what you want us to talk about. Head to the Facebooks. Go to the Order 66 podcast Facebook page. Go to the D20 Radio group. Post it up. Ask questions. Get your voice heard. Meet the community. Get out there if you're not already. Um, leave us a liner. Tell us why you never listen to the Order 66 podcast. 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. Um, and also, give us any questions you might have. And email us, of course, uh, with show requests and topics uh, or questions for the show. Uh, GM Chris, GM Phil, or GM Dave at d20radio.com. And with that, Gamer Nation, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Keep that rolling. May the dice be with you. This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 Podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. Thank you.